Hello, hello everyone, and welcome to Awakening Aphrodite. I am Amy Fournier, your hostess. This show is all about helping you have a more fit, healthy, and empowered life in mind, body, and spirit, as well as to balance your masculine and feminine energy, tap into your true source of power, your intuition, and your authentic self. Today, I have a very, very special guest for you. Before I introduce our guest, I'd like to take you on a little journey. So indulge me if you will. If we just take a pause for a moment, I'd like you to think about back to the time when you were six years old. Okay, so just envision your six-year-old self. And then I'd like you to imagine one day you wake up and you're told that you're no longer allowed to sing. You're no longer allowed to dance. You're no longer allowed to listen to music. You can't even ride your bike. You're no longer allowed to play board games like chess or checkers. And you can't engage in any kind of creative, playful, imaginative, artistic, or social endeavors. And if you're a female, you have to ride in the back of the bus, no matter how empty the bus is for everybody else. You also have to cover your head and you have to subjugate yourself to the wishes of men. Also, imagine your family in your neighborhood has to wait in lines and get rations of food and other household goods. And then imagine on top of all that, you have to live in constant fear and terror that in any given moment, a bomb might drop on your house or your neighbor's house and that Seeing one of your family members, one of your friends, or in anyone in your community might be the last time you ever see them alive. Not only that, imagine that some of your own young friends suddenly go missing for no apparent reason and sometimes are executed without proper trial or reason. Well, my friend, this is not a fairy tale. But in fact, this is the real life of the guest on my show today, Ari Hanavar. Ari Hanavar, in my opinion, is a living hero. She's an award-winning journalist who writes about social justice issues and whose writing has appeared in The Guardian, Teen Vogue, Washington Post, Vice, and many, many other places. She's a magical poet, an amazing artist, and creator of her own beautiful oral card, oracle card deck called Rumi's Gift. She's also the Iranian musical ambassador of peace in California and Mexico, and is a speaker and founder of Rumi with a View, which is dedicated to building music and poetry bridges across war-torn war -torn and conflict-ridden borders. She grew up in the turmoil and the terror of wartime Iran. And she has an amazing, amazing life story that she's gonna share with us. Ari is truly the embodiment of what it means to be a person who lives with true courage, as well as real grounding, appreciation, a mindset of service, compassion, and strength, as well as a compelling and inspiring spirituality. Ari Hanavar, welcome to Awakening Aphrodite. Oh, 
Thank you so much, Amy. What a beautiful exercise to uh, bring empathy and uh, and kind of just use the imagination to uh, make a grounding happen for stories to follow. Thank you for that. Well, it, all right. It is honestly um, my humble pleasure because in doing my research to have you on my show, I just I. I'm almost speechless at your life, and I'm so excited for you to share with our audience your story. Your story is is like a movie. It's almost, it's too horrific to be true, but it is true. And we're going to tap into what happened to you and your wisdom now that you can share with us in living where you are today. So just tell us quickly where you're located now, and um, and then please go into your story for us. Right now, I live in uh, the beautiful, sunny San Diego, California. And uh, my story began in Shiraz, Iran, the mass majestic city of poets and wine. Uh, we had such beautiful gardens and the mountains surrounded the city. And people used poetry, not just in celebrations and weddings, but in conversation. When you greeted someone, we would, we would use poetry. When we were resolving conflicts, we would uh, be reciting poetry and, and I would just kind of break the tension. So when I was six, um, because joy and suffering are so inextricably linked in this room, my life changed forever. My life along with 20 million other people's lives. And, uh, and if we count Iraq, several more uh, million people as well. So um, when I was six, women of Iran lost their right to ride a bicycle, as you said, or sing in public. And then just as this war on women and our freedom of expression was taking place. Saddam Hussein attacked Iran and started a war that took countless lives and lasted eight years. So as you said, during those times, it was very hard for people to uh, maintain any kind of a sense of um, agency or stability in their lives. At any moment, someone would, could be taken away as a political dissident or a, uh, or a bomb could fall. Um, and this was happening for Iraqi people as well. Um, but in Iran, what we were uh, experiencing was, was probably similar for Iraqi people too, where in my elementary school, there wasn't a kid who hadn't lost someone to the political oppression or uh, the, uh, the bombs and war and missiles and chemical weapons and such. So as this is happening, we had to come up with ways to nourish our soul. And it was very natural for us to, to go into poetry, to the, to the salve of uh, mystical poetry. And, um, and I think I shared this before, um, which a story that you've heard that 
on the nights that we would be particularly brave, we would go to our rooftops to watch the anti-aircraft missiles shoot up into the air. And to my seven-year-old eyes, this would be like the most glorious 4th of July fireworks, these beautiful patterns of red covering the black sky. But then underneath that awe, there was such a terror in my little belly. Uh, who was the lottery of death going to claim next? Was it going to be my sister in Tehran, my family, um, my best friend, my teacher, or was it going to be me? And then someone from another rooftop would shout something like, Barhamegan Garzefalak Zahr Bebaurat Hameshab Man Shekarandar 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 Shekaram. Even if from the sky poison befalls all, I am still sweetness wrapped in sweetness, wrapped in sweetness, wrapped in sweetness. And a passerby below would respond with something like, Digaronat ishq mi khonanduman sultan ishq, ey tobalatar. While others are singing about love, I am the Sultan of Love. And poems like that, verses like that would go right into your heart and radiate through your seven-year-old being until you were everything and nothing at the same time. You were, your life was as glorious as the ecstatic poets. And in that state, what bomb could ever touch this? Wow, that's just, wow. I mean, Ari, the I know the podcast goes all over the world, but for the typical American, honestly, we can't even relate to that. I mean, that is just, it's just truly unrelatable. Uh, I'm almost speechless. Like I'm forgetting all my notes because that's just so powerful. Uh, tell us about, just could you go into a little bit more? Because So your culture used poetry for a coping mechanism is what it sounds like. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what did that really look like? Like, were, was it just constantly people making up their own poetry? Was it reading from famous poets? Uh, was it a little of both? I mean, how did you actually use the poetry to cope? So, so many different ways. Again, because music and dancing and other creative expressions were so suppressed. Poetry flowered like this beautiful, unending source of nourishment for us. And um, my mother was, is a poet and she uh, was composing her own poetry. I was composing my own poetry uh, when, the, when we were in the basement and the 
you know, uh, the threat of bombs were, were in the air, the uh, host on the radio would have a poetry contest and he would uh, recite one verse, whether it was from an old um, Persian poet or a new verse. And the contestants had to come up with their own uh, second verse to complete that. And, and that was, that just took our mind away from, from the terror and what was going to happen. We were so con consumed with coming up with the best second verse to, uh, to this, uh, to this contest. So, so it was, it was a little like that where, where we, uh, and then when, when we were, we can't, we couldn't really complain about what was happening because spies were everywhere. So uh, we would use a lot of allegories and metaphors to, you know, talk about how, for example, how the forest, the, how the, uh, the gardeners, those who were supposed to protect the garden had become um, lumberjacks and they were cutting down the trees. That, that was uh, talking about the government, the, the people in charge who were supposed to care for their own people and ended up um, actually destroying people's lives. So that's how, <laughs> that's how we used it. Yeah, because it's funny you said that because I was going to ask because if they outlawed dancing and music and culture and all that, how did they just not also outlaw poetry? They did uh, to some extent. I mean, poets would also get, um, I mean, that's, that's the, the, um, the mode M MO of, of terror that you never know who's going to get this weird wheel of fortune. Yeah, uh, the randomness. Wheel of, yeah, misfortune that, that, you know, someone doesn't like you and, uh, and you say something and they say, ah, oh, that was anti-regime and then anti-Islamic. And, and then the next thing you know, they would be taken away. And of course, um, some poets did definitely bury the brunt of that too. Uh, but people did what they, um, what, what, was, what their soul was, was yearning to do anyways. It has to be expressed. So this, just to give us some context, Ari, this, we're talking the late 1970s, right? This was eight, 1980s. Uh, uh, Iran-Iraq war started in 1980 and ended in 1988. Okay, okay, so 1980s, okay. And you even had to, uh, because you were a rebel, right? You, were, you always had that little fire in you. So didn't you even disguise yourself as a boy so you could play for a while? Tell us about, tell us about the little Ari and what, what you did to survive and any, major, any experiences that you had that really stick out for you and formed the woman that you are today. I had, um, uh, uh, my best friend was a boy. And we played a lot and, and uh, after the revolution, I just did not want to be restricted. I wanted to be like a boy and run and ride my bicycle and do all the wonderful things that boys got to do. I thought it was inherently unfair and so, such an injustice for, for me to be separated from my best friend like that. So um, I had a boy's haircut. I looked 
very much like a boy. I dressed like a boy and I went out there and I played for for a while before people told my parents, oh my God, she's, you know, act, acting like a boy. You need to, if she, she could get into big trouble. So they, uh, they're like, no, 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 you can't go out there anymore. You gotta wear your hijab. You gotta uh, do what you need to do. So, so that's kind of what I did. And then later, because of this incessant rage that one would feel um, in response to these injustices, I would go out at night and write anti-Khomeini, anti-regime um, graffiti on, on walls of our neighbors and such. Wow. And the, the punishment for that is, is definitely severe. It could be death because treason, it's not just treason against the government, but it's, you know, treason against God because we lived in a theocracy. So, so it was uh, not a good situation. Okay, so uh, tell us what it was like. Tell well, first of all, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. Please uh, describe what a hijab is exactly, and tell us what it was like to wear one. Hijab. It's a. Um, it's the what it means. It's an Arabic word. It means co covering. Covering. Um, yeah. So we had to cover our hair. And, uh, and it was very restrictive for, for me. Uh, other people, other women were fine with it. Some were, some were not. Some were very religious. And my grandmother, she really never went outside the house without the hijab. Uh, she uh, was very religious. And uh, back in the 40s, I believe, was it 40s or 50s, they, um, the government did the opposite. The, the um, Reza Shah's regime, they went in and uh, they uncovered women's hair. They're like, you can't wear hijab uh, in public anymore because uh, we're modernizing Iran and this is not great anymore. And that was also another way to subjugate women and, uh, and tell them what to do, what to wear, what to not. And that was, you know, so so this my uh, my stance at the time and still now is not an anti-hijab stance, but it's a, a freedom of women stance. Whatever a woman wants to wear, they should be able to wear without judgment. Just like a man could wear uh, religious garbs or um, you know go out there in a in just shorts, and uh, no one would bat an eye. So freedom of choice. Yes, for women. Uh, do they still have to wear them today? Are there restrictions like that today in the in 2021? There is. Um, it's loosened somewhat, but people, women are still going to jail. Women are still getting acid thrown in their faces for um, not, um, you know, observing proper hijab. So, so there is definitely that women's rights issue is is uh, much of concern for women and men also. Many men support women's rights in Iran, so they end up, you know, getting um, arrested or or beaten or uh, or worse as they're uh, helping women. Unbelievable. So other than poetry, were there any other common uh, th things that you could remember that you did 
with your family or in your culture to cope? There were a lot of ways that we had to figure out how to survive. Uh, one of the many, um, one of the things that actually saved us so much was a sense of humor. We, um, we laughed a lot. <laughs> so, what? I mean, where could you even find it? I mean, it's so admirable. It's beautiful. Tell us, how did you find the, the humor in such a scary, terrorizing situation, oppressive situation? Well, I, don't, I, don't, I think comedians actually have led very dark lives. It's not that they've been around very flowery and, and uh, functional situations in their lives. And they end up uh, using that as a way to, to um, use their comedic perspective to spin it and, and show what, uh, what can be done. And that's, what, that's why they're so popular. That's why comedy is so popular and comedians are so successful, good comedians. And um, same with us, you know, the, we, um, we always found a way to, uh, to laugh about uh, what was happening. Uh, like the, the mullahs, the, the religious um, heads of state, you know, they would have these kind of maudlin um, religious prayers and we would make danceable songs out of them and we would dance and laugh in the privacy of our own home because it was, you know, that the, their whole thing was to make people cry and we would take that and <laughs> and make it into a- Like a parody. Yeah, a total parody. So, so we did that um, a lot. We had rituals, which are soul savers. Uh, we, um, you know, the women would gather together and have these uh, very, um, they would tell this, these specific stories and use uh, certain ingredients to make dishes because ingredients were not necessarily um, available because of rations. So, um, so they, yeah, there, this resourcefulness was definitely uh, a part of survival to how to use different means and how to dance with life, even when you're so restricted, even when you have chains around you. That is true freedom right there, hanging on to that. Um, so as we record this, we're still in the middle of the pandemic and uh, with a lot of restrictions with social interaction, there's a lot of loneliness and people have, I think the, the good side of the whole situation is it's helped people get very clear on their priorities and their values and truly what's important in life, like human connection, togetherness, contact, literally physical contact. So tell us, uh, you know, how, how did you guys during that time, how did your family, you're just a young girl in this terrorizing situation, you're dealing with the possible betrayal of friends by people snitching on each other. You don't know who to trust. The government is pr promoting paranoia and fear. So it's an undercurrent of anxiety and distrust. In light of all that, how did you guys function in a community cohesion to have that comfort in your home? And I guess you're a little bit of an extended home 
but really knowing that you can trust these people, they're not going to betray you. Like, how did you guys navigate that? Mm. Yeah, trust is such an important, um, it's so important in life to have trust. And uh, uh, so without it, life becomes super restrictive. Uh, We trusted our close friends and neighbors uh, and they trusted us. Uh, Once we had a, um, our neighbor had a uh, birthday party for her teenage daughter and she, um, she was, she had cancer and, and she had gathered all her strength to throw this party. And we were in there, there were music, there was dancing, there was men and women together, which that was a big no-no um, during this, this uh, restriction. And uh, it ended up, the, it got raided. Um, the men in, in, in fatigues and Kalashnikov rifles uh, came in and they, they raided the party. And we jumped over the fence, over the wall into our house and everyone else followed us, all the guests. And they ended up, um, you know, escaping from our house, except for the, the host who had a seizure on our front yard. And uh, we couldn't help her because we had rifles pointed at us. And it was one of the most traumatic experiences of that, those days to not be able to help someone who is ill, who is shaking on the ground. And, uh, and I was like 10 or 11 at the time. You were um, so, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I wanna get into uh, your current situation, but I can't even imagine like the post-traumatic stress and all that, the nightmares you brought. I mean, the fact that you're functioning so well, at least on the surface, I mean, in, you know, in light of the horror, is just truly remarkable. Um, so please tell us then, let's fast forward a little. You came, it's a truly incredible story that the poetry is really what saved your life because it was your mother's poem that was your ticket to come to the U.S. So tell us about that story, please, how you came to the U.S. and what your family situation is and, and now and, and all that. Mm. My uh, mother, as I mentioned, is a poet. And the, at the time, Iran was a bit of a uh, banned nation. No one was giving refugees a visa to, to, uh, to escape. So people did very uh, extreme things. They, uh, smugglers, human smugglers, had their clients dress up as sheep and walk on um, uh, all fours to the Turkey border with with the sheep herders, and some of them got away, got to the other side. Um, other people married their young daughter to to an old older person who could get them out. Uh, my mother wrote a poem, and that's how we got I got out. Uh, and she wrote a poem. Um, about India's Independence Day and uh, submitted it along with our visa application to India. And then India gave us a visa. Uh, the ambassador, like the poem, gave us a visa to go to India. And then from there, we secured an appointment with the American embassy 
And against all odds, uh, we were given a tourist visa to come to the US. And uh, my parents had to go back to Iran. My sister was still there. So I ended up living here um, without my parents at the age of 14. Who were you living with? At first, it was an American family. Then um, I lived with my brother who um, I hadn't seen for 10 years because he left as an exchange student before the revolution and then he couldn't return. So um, I ended up living with him who was 10 years older. Okay, unbelievable. And um, just give us the update on your family now. Is, are people safe? Are they here in the US? Have you seen them? Yes, it took us 21 years before we were all in the same place together. And that was really wild. And then a year, two years later, my father passed away. Um, and then my mom is still in around in San Diego. And my brother is also, my sister is in Canada. So we're all miraculously have survived and I'm very grateful. That is truly a miracle. And, and how beautiful your father got to be reunited. You were just cutting out there. I didn't oh, hear. Sorry. I just said how beautiful that your father had the blessing to be reunited with his family before he passed. Yes, definitely. Yeah, we were all together when, when he passed away, which was... That's more. beautiful. So, Okay. Now let's take a turn and tell us who is Rumi, or should I say who was Rumi? And tell us about your relationship with him. He was a poet 800 years ago, a Sufi poet, uh, which is the mystical side of Islam. Um, to him, spirituality was a very feminine, receptive, concept where you you were responsible for your own spirituality and God wasn't something outside of you. He um, lived 800 years ago and he uttered all these poems, um, 10,000 verses or more. And, and uh, there's still the, that light, that fire is still um, catching and, and um, igniting people's hearts and uh, passion. Um, he, his poetry is one, he's the best-selling poet in the world. So, so he definitely has, has gone out of the Persian, um, Persia, Turkey, that's where he was in, and he's all over the world right now. His work. Is there, is there something that, uh, for all your exposure to poetry, and like you said, he is the most famous poet in the whole world. But regardless, is there something about him? Because now your life's work in your first Oracle deck, your website, yada, yada, your next book is all really geared around him. Was there a reason why it was him other than the fact that he was so popular? Yeah, so there was definitely he was definitely a bridge for me. When I came to the US, I had to forgo my poetry for a while to integrate because as you know, um, mainstream in the mainstream, there isn't much poetry going on in the US. And it was, I was not reciting um, poems in conversations like I used to. So I 
kind of took a back seat, but then um, at my very first heartbreak and when my father was um, was dying, his poetry just Rumi's poetry just came in and seeped into every crack of my being and nourished me in a way that I could not have imagined. Uh, when I grew up, I, Hafez was was my favorite. I knew most of his poems by heart. And then, but Rumi was this bridge to my past and uh, to to this indescribable, indecipherable um, expansiveness that that allowed me to to really see through his eyes what what glorious life there can be how glorious life can be and Ari do when you read Rumi a lot of I think the disconnect that people have with poetry is they just say they don't get it right but when you read Rumi or should I say experienced Rumi uh did your soul immediately resonate with it did you get it like what he was saying were you able to understand the metaphors apply them to your real life obviously it spoke to your soul, but tell us about that. Was it an immediate understanding and reverence or was it more of like you had to ponder it, meditate on it, and then it came to you over time? Yeah, his poetry runs in my blood. Um, you know, I've, I've been born into uh, generations of Rumi lovers and I can't recall a time where he was separate from, from me. His words were separate from me. And, uh, and I hear that from a lot of people who don't even speak Farsi, uh, where there is this situation where, where I recite the poem in Farsi and they're like, I understand this. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they don't understand the words, but somehow something gets transmitted. So it's got something in it that is so visceral and so uh, immediate that it bypasses the intellect, it bypasses the uh, under, you know, our knowledge and language. And that probably comes through in your art, right? When you do your paintings, you're just, I'm just assuming you're probably just letting that flow through you and coming out onto the canvas, right? Mm-hmm, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, my, um, my, um, paintings don't take that long because everything just flows out of me and wow. here's one uh, for those who can't see on um, it's the cover of Rumi's gift um, and it's a woman meditating and his, her uh, body is made out of a Rumi poem so it's truly remarkable for those people that are uh, listening by podcast we apologize, but when you get a chance, hit up the show notes and go to my YouTube channel, Fit Amy TV, and you will see this whole episode with the absolutely gorgeous Ari, and she's holding up her beautiful painting that she did herself. What was the topic of that one? Was that the freedom painting? I remember. Yeah, see, I remember that one. Freedom. It's just remarkable. And Ari, would you hold up the Oracle deck again for us? And I apologize for the podcast, folks. She's holding up the beautiful deck that she created called Rumi's Gift. And explain to us, please, what exactly that is and how, how you created that, how that came about. It's so ingenious and gorgeous. 
the idea was that um, I wanted to make a bridge between the uh, Persian practice of divination, uh, which we, we did through poetry, uh, as usually Hafiz, but sometimes Rumi, and uh, the Western Tower. And so made an oracle deck with all his, uh, I had th 33 paintings. Some of them were painted with Carmen Castello, another really beautiful artist. And um, the other ones are my own paintings of what we call a calligram, which is calligraphy uh, made into an image. And so there are some poem cards. Beautiful. So she's holding them up. And just to, uh, so what you're saying that the calligram, so that's, do I have this right, Ari, that, that it's the words that you're using the actual words as the lines of the painting to make the forms, right? Yes, definitely. So amazing. Everybody, uh, one of my best friends and mentor, Paul Check, gave me Ari's gorgeous deck, Lumi's gift. Uh, first of all, he's enamored with Ari Hanavar and, and her amazing life story. Paul, Ari, and I are all artists. I am an aspiring artist. I am nowhere near of the caliber of Paul or Ari, but I got turned on to it. And um, Paul is just, I'm so grateful that he gave me that gift because it is just gorgeous. And please go to YouTube, everyone, and look at, look at her beautiful deck. And obviously, it'll be on your website, which we'll get to at the end of the show. Um, you, you can really, one, can really appreciate, it's almost like you're the female living embodiment of Rumi, <laughs> you know, dare I say, you know, I mean, you really, it's so clear that you are channeling, and maybe you can explain that to us now, because I'd love to ask you how you get into that place to tap into that part of your soul to access it. And um, well, let's just start with that. So could you tell us about that? Because poetry is so, so uh, distant for most typical people, I would say. We don't do poetry. So how do you, how do you access that part of yourself? Um, I think our, our beings, our human bodies and mind complexes, they're uh, just very natural, very good. Um, pleasure homing devices. They're out there seeking wholesome, wonderful pleasure that, and that's how we nourish ourselves. So some people go out in nature and they get filled with that. Others uh, through cooking or gardening or running or any, you know, creating art. So those, those are some ways, and I do it all. Um, <laughs> so, so there's this kind of a, you, you tap into this non-dual, beautiful, gorgeous, nothing and everything at the same time uh, through so many means. And it's very playful, very natural. But the, the parts that I want to emphasize is, is the uh, honoring of um, suffering and integrating and, and um, not bypassing our own suffering and not turning away from other people's suffering and that I think I've uh, mentioned uh, the um, the Rumi one of the cards in Rumi's deck 
in Rumi's Oracle deck is um, the treasure card, which says, um, Oh, pilgrims on your way to Hajj, where are you going? Your beloved is right here. Come back, come back. Did you know that your suffering is your treasure? Did you know that your suffering is your treasure? Alas, you are the veil covering your treasure. Wow. 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 Ari, translate that for us. What does that mean to you? Your suffering is your treasure. What is he trying to say? That's where the nectar lies. That's where the good stuff is. We're going around chasing uh, candies and uh, high fructose corn syrup when the true nectar lies into the nourishment is when, when you dive into your own suffering, when, when, it, when the time is right and you're able to and you see uh, that there is no suffering by going really into it or the suffering becomes the beloved like your long lost beloved something a part of you that has been yearning for attention and for love and is malnourished and and you pour all your love into that part into that uh place that is uh that we you've been neglecting all your lives beautiful i love it so do you have a favorite Rumi poem out of all the poems? Is there one that really is like the one for you or? There's so many and it's very time, um, you know, situation based. Yes. So, so yeah, this one particularly speaks to me now because Perfect. people are really suffering right now so much because of various reasons. And, uh, and, I, and it's a good reminder not to turn away from, from that, no, to the balance of nourishing ourselves, having enough pleasure and, and beauty in our own and joy in our own lives. And then at the same time, being able to ease someone else's suffering. I think that's a really good point, Ari, that, yeah, I mean, there is a lot of suffering going on right now, but I love how, you know, you're staying attached to the joy in spite of it, which is, I think it's a hard thing to do in practicality. Um, can you just expand on that a little bit more just so people can really apply that? Like if they're really, really suffering, they lost their job, they're lonely, their income is probably cut in half. They, you know, our freedoms have been certainly compromised. There's a lot of fear and anxiety. Maybe they lost a loved one that, you know, has, whatever. How do they do that? How do they still walk that line between the joy and the suffering? What would they do in those situations? So the, it's a very complex question because what we need is a really good support system 
and our system is very individualistic right now, which is such a poison. We need our community to support us. So not everything falls on our own shoulders, should not fall on someone who's ailing, who's lost a job. You know, there people, you know, there should be a safety net catching the the uh, the people. So so the and then the the grief. Grief really requires a lot of support from, from yeah. other people. Um, so this this is not a situation of pull yourself up by your boot by your own bootstraps because that is such a damaging thing to um, to be preaching because we need to fix our society uh, rather than put all the onus on the individual to to fix themselves. But um, one thing that we can do is just those moments that do bring us joy to keep expanding it and savoring it. If we're drinking, drinking a cup of tea or a delicious coffee, really notice the, the, the temperature, the, uh, the flavor, the smell, the aroma, what's around us uh, orient to the beauty. And just if we do that a few times a day, uh, I wrote an article about this when um, pleasant moment is a radical act and it goes into the neurology of, of this and how this actually helps us become more resilient. Beautiful. That is a great example. And it's like really just leaning in and pausing just long enough to really bring into your full mind, body, spirit awareness of something that is giving you pleasure in some regard, like a beautiful example, like a simple cup of coffee, or, you know, I was walking my dog the other day and there was a swing set. And I swear, I think it was the first time this little girl had ever been on a swing and the joy on her face. I almost started crying. I literally just stopped in my tracks. And I, I think the mother was like, you weirdo, why are you looking at my kid? But I just was, my heart just completely blew up and expanded. And I just had this big smile and tears came in my eyes. And I just was like, that that's God right there. That is the joy in this child. And so just pausing for myself to take a moment to receive that gift of being able to witness God in action, this beautiful child. You know, it was just, um, it was incredible. So leaning into those moments, you know, I think is great advice. And that uh, leads us to your version of the narcissist myth, right? Did you want to share anything on that, on that regard with isolationism and individual individuality? Um, real quickly, the, uh, the myth of narcissists told from the Persian mystics lens is that the young man goes to um, fetch water and sees his own image in the lake, but he becomes enamored. And but rather than the Greek myth getting frozen into that one second uh, and then not unable to move and uh, and dying there, he dives into the lake. He risks everything, um, his own livelihood, to unite with his beloved. And I think this death and emergence is such a beautiful way to, uh, to see that when he comes out to Narcissus flower, or when, when he dies, two Narcissus flowers emerge on the edge of the lake. And these are his eyes seeing all of humanity, all of 
creation as a collection of himself. So rather than being fixated with his own individual self, it opens him up, opens him up to the whole world. And in their pleasure, they emit such a beautiful heavenly fragrance. Wonderful. I thank you for sharing that with us. Ari, as we get toward the end of the episode, uh, I do have two last questions for you that I really would love to tap into your wisdom. How did your experiences growing up as a young girl in uh, the war-torn Iran influence the way you're now raising your young son? Mm. Yeah, so the one of the best advices I got from parenting advice, they said, don't make your kid's life hard by making it easy. Ah. So, <laughs> so it's, um, that's, that was just so good to, to see that it's really good for him to be up on the news. I work with refugees and asylum seekers who have um, been through as much or more than I have been deaf. You know, so many of them have seen loved ones killed. And, uh, and so tell you show him these faces, show, show him the, the, the beauty of these individuals that we're trying to, to keep from coming to the United States to keep to seek asylum. Um, though, you know, there's their stories, how they're rehumanizing people who have been dehumanized. Uh, those are some ways that um, we have. And then rituals, the rituals that I was brought up with, we do a lot of connection rituals in our little family um, to, to uh, uh, keep up with the, the beauty and the tradition that I was brought up with. And that also reinforces and cements the connection within your own family. It connects, it reinforces the bond within all of you as well not only keeping the tradition alive, but your own connection. Yes, yes. Ari, last question is a really important one to me to ask someone like you is, uh, what three things would you want particularly Americans to know? Uh, I'm asking this of you, a woman who knows what it's like to live in terror, to know what it's like to face death every day, to live with death every day, to live with subjugation, and restrictions on your freedom, um, sexism, God knows what else, um, just basic human rights, uh, again, fear of death. What three things would you wish all Americans would know that are important to you to share? Hmm. So the part, because there's so much suffering here as well, you know, that the, the part that I would like all the listeners and all the viewers to, to uh, practice is that what's enjoyable is sustainable. So find something that you really love and enjoy and, and, and is healthy and just go for it. And, and it's going to become this beautiful, sustainable part of your life. And once that happens, then you know, your container is full of nourishment and you can share it with others. You can ease other people's suffering. And um, I would say for Americans, it's either travel and now there's some travel restrictions or learn about other cultures and the beauty that they have to, to share, learn about 
uh, foreign policy and, and uh, the politics and the corporations and, and nutrition and how, you know, these big corporations are, um, are part of our governments. Those, those things affect our very, uh, our very lives that, that we can be aware of and we can um, have the agency to change once we're, we're ever aware of them together. Great advice. Yeah, fascism is real. Uh, Ari, is there anything else you want to share with our viewers and listeners before we uh, find out how we can find out more about you? Any last parting words? Um, just that, yeah, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so grateful. And I hope that uh, we all meet one day <laughs> and my family becomes bigger and bigger. Oh, absolutely. That would be truly my honor. Um, okay, Ari, please tell everyone about your, your book coming this fall. Tell us about your website, your social media, and anything else you want to draw attention. And just a reminder, this will be in the show notes for those people who aren't able to write down what she's going to say. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, I have a debut novel coming out in September, and it's called A Girl Called Rumi and is based on my life as a nine-year-old girl. It's from a nine-year-old perspective. And it really gets into this, this beauty of storytelling and, and the nourishment of poetry and, and, and joy and what sustains us in the midst of horror and oppression. Uh, the uh, other, and it's from forthcoming from Forest Avenue Press. My website is roomywithaview.com. And I'm on social media at Rumi with a view on Instagram and Rumi with view on Twitter. And you can see um, Ari's amazing relationship with hummingbirds on her Instagram. It's incredible. They come and feed right out of her hand and it's just gorgeous. And you can see a lot of her art and poetry there as well. It's great stuff. Thank you so much, Amy. Wow. Thank you so much, Ari. This has just been so inspiring and incredible. And folks, uh, remember, you can check out this uh, episode with Ari over on my YouTube channel, which is Fit Amy TV. That's also my Instagram. If you enjoyed the show, please help support the show. It really does help by rating the show, reviewing the show, and sharing it with your friends. And you can find out more about me on my website, amyfornier.com. And uh, Ari? Until we do our art together in person and share a cup of tea, perhaps in San Diego, I thank you one last time for being on Awakening Aphrodite. Thank you so much, Amy. It was okay. a pleasure talking to you. Okay, everyone. Thanks for listening and watching. And I already can't wait to be with you again.